that's what communities are for. You show up for the spaces where you're going to get the identity that you're looking for mirrored back to you. Oh, wow. Right? That's wild. Yeah, mind that's, that's mind-blowing. Yeah. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Pretty Decent Podcast. My name is Lexi Merritt, and on this show, I bring you ideas and perspectives and information and advice and all sorts of different ways of looking at creative business. My goal is to help you do things you actually like to do and make a living from it. And that's what this show is all about. So today I bring you a conversation with one of the most brilliant people I know, one of my close personal friends, someone I've worked with as a coach, and again, just one of the most generous kind, deep-thinking, smart humans I know, and that is Linnea Sims. Linnea is an artist, a community builder, the founder of Inner Play and Outer Work, two dual education networks, which I'll let her explain more in depth. I met Linnea like I've met a lot of my friends on Instagram a couple of years ago. We instantly connected. Uh, I think our shared purpose was very evident from both of our feeds and I joined her membership as soon as it was available, and she joined mine as soon as mine was. So we've really been present for each other over the last couple of years as she's built out Interplay and Outer Work, and I've built out Pretty Decent and our membership, The Study. You may have noticed, or you may not have, but you may have noticed that there was not an episode of this podcast last week. I am just learning to accept the fact that every week may not be the most sustainable thing for me right now. And I've decided to, for the sake of being able to be consistent, uh, commit to every other week. These episodes may come more often, but for now, I'm just going to let it be what it is. And if nothing else, maybe it can be an example for you that sometimes, especially in the beginning, we just have to do what we can. So without further ado, I don't want to take up too much time because this is a lengthy and deep and really, really fun conversation. Uh, so I'll just let you get to it. But thank you for listening. And if you want to connect with me, if you want to chat about working with me or joining our membership, The Study, where I teach marketing classes and we have plenty of conversations just like the one you'll hear today, you can email me at lexi at prettydecent.org or check out our website, www.prettydecent.org. We're pretty decent on Instagram as well, if that's your thing. So Without further ado, I bring you a conversation on decolonial community spaces with Linnea Sims. Hi, welcome to the Pretty Decent Podcast. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I'm good. I'm coming out of hermit mode of a school week. And so it's always kind of like, I feel like I'm like slowly crawling out of a hole, but it's like, it's good. I'm coming out very like refreshed. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about the school that you're doing. Um, I also mm -hmm. want to first say shout out to my Mima who, because this is not the first time that we have done this, we have mm. done, remember we did the Zoom, like lunch break conversation type thing I was doing at the beginning of the pandemic. Then we did an IG live. And when we did the IG live, my Mima listened to it and she described you as the type of person she would love to live next door to and chat with over the fence while she's sitting by the pool. I don't know if you told me that you told me that your Mima liked me but I don't think you told me the specifics and that is incredible I thought it was like the perfect definition of you I was like I think of it every time I think of you now I loved it 
Um, so really? shout out to Mima. Hello, Mima. <laughs> we'll center this episode. Hi, Mima. We love you. <laughs> we love you. Um, all right, cool. So do you, I want you to start by maybe painting us a picture of where you are in the world. Um, so where are you and what are some things that you can see, smell, hear, and touch right now? Ooh, fun. Um, so I am in Santa Cruz, California, United States of America. <laughs> um, I am in my bedroom currently sitting on my bed. You're on a stack of my pillows. <laughs> I can see a plant just over my computer. I just got a new, really pretty plant that has a beautiful pink flower on it. And I can hear faint traffic out the window a little bit down on the street. Um, and it smells really like crisp and clean because we just washed our sheets. So it's very nice in here. And it's a really beautiful sunny day. So there's like a beautiful blue sky out the windows and that's really lovely. Oh, love it. California vibes is very gray here in mm -hmm. Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, amazing. And so what does life look like you look like for you right now? I know that you are in school. Uh, mm -hmm. How has that been? Yeah. School's great. I mean, you know, the first quarter was a little, a little rocky. Um, and people were asking me what school was like. And I was like, I don't really know yet. <laughs> like I'm kind of on the fence. I don't know. But this quarter, which I just started last week has been really incredible. Um, my professors are super engaging and young and radical and cool. And, um, the material that I'm learning this quarter is so dope. So I feel really like on my scholarly shit, like that's where I'm really feeling right now. Like I'm, I was saying like, I, I feel like I'm a little bit in like hermit mode, but I'm realizing that's like my, that's my comfy place. Like I like to kind of be grounded in my own energy and like be in my home and be reading books and taking notes and having ideas and, you know, just feeling like I'm really in tune with what's going on around me. So my life right now really looks a lot like working on projects and then reading a lot and doing a lot of kind of theorizing and then immediately putting it into practice with the projects I'm working on. So I'm in a really nice flow right now. I love that. Smart girl, smart girl <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's what I think of. <laughs> um, amazing. So I wanted to, when I was planning out podcast episodes, I was, you know, writing them on the board and I wrote just community spaces with Linnea because that's mm -hmm. just what I think of when I think of you and like all of the conversations that we have. Um, I also was thinking about when I was thinking about what my, my grandma had said, what Mima had said, I was thinking mm -hmm. about that metaphor that I feel like both of us have used from time to time, which is this idea that we're just all like on the internet. Yes. But on that metaverse type of thing, like, I feel like if their internet did have neighborhoods that pretty decent interplay and outer work, your community spaces would be on the same block. They'd be like the same type of person tends to float in between those those three things. So do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, interplay and outer work and some of the yeah. community building you've done? Yeah, for sure. My gosh. Okay. So um, I'll, I'll say what they both are first because I've started to get some real clarity around them lately, which has been so exciting. Um, so I think of interplay and outer work as being these two separate but very intertwined community spaces geared towards self-liberation and collective liberation. So Interplay is a essentially like a self-development club that's 
all about joy and healing and self-liberation through the practices of play, creativity, and self-reflection. Um, and Outer Work is a community care club that's all about creatively resourcing BIPOC visions for social change. Um, and so, you know, you, you know as well as I do, because you've been with me along the journey of both of them, that they both started in places that were not necessarily community focused, but have since truly evolved, I think, to be these extremely community centered spaces. Um, that is primarily their function is to provide community for people at this time. And that's really exciting for me. Um, I think it's helped me to realize that my own purpose is very much tied up in cultivating communities. It's something that I kind of stumbled into, but then I look back on my life and realize like, oh, I've actually been doing this kind of stuff for a really long time. Um, even when I was like, you know, I was used to be the director of marketing for a, a, an events company and um, it was essentially a community job. Like all I did was talk to people about the kinds of events we could put on together and promoted their events. And it was, you know, a, a company called Conscious City Guide that did conscious events. So we, we planned retreats and things like that. And I'm like, oh, I've just been doing this for a long time. I think even back to high school, like I was the club commissioner, <laughs> which is so funny to think about, but I literally, my job was to run all of the school clubs and to like make sure that they were all like, you know, functioning properly and doing what they needed to do to like get members and whatever. So I've been doing this forever. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really fun to realize that this has like become my life now. Yeah. Those are my favorite moments. Like when you have those, like the Steve Jobs quote, you connect the dots backwards. Like when you have those moments when you're like, oh, this is the same thing I was doing. For me, I had that realization once. Um, I don't know why I never put two and two together, but in college, in my sorority, the people would pick what position you should be in. Like you weren't allowed to campaign for roles. They would pick it and kind of like, and um, my sorority picked me to be the new member educator. And one day I was like, member, membership. Oh, <laughs> it's like, oh, that was the same thing. Yes. Um, I didn't even realize it until that moment. So it's funny that I wanted to ask you what you remember, what your some of your earliest memories of community, mm -hmm. of being in community, and then maybe in participating actively in community where yeah. it's all in high school for me. Um, <clears throat> so growing up, I was kind of a like lone wolf a little bit like I was a, not an only child, but my siblings were a lot older than me. Um, and so I grew up in the house by myself and I always was kind of like the mature kid. So I never really liked, I never like wanted to like play or like, I don't know, do the things that the other kids were doing. I'd hang out with the adults all the time. And it wasn't until high school that I found like other people who I felt like were like me. Um, and my high school, it was middle school, high school, and they did such a great job of bringing us together, like just with different extracurricular activities. But like, I even think about like being in photo class. I was in the same photo class from like eighth grade through senior year of high school. And it was like, the same group of kids. And we like had a dark room and we just spent all of our time in there together. And like, there's just like little instances like that, that I remember of like feeling like I was really in community with my, um, with my prep family. It's like a, my boyfriend says it's like a cult because me and my two best friends all, <laughs> we went there we all went there and um, we constantly talk about our high school. Like we're obsessed with it. It was just like the best time. 
So I think that was really the the first time I felt like I was part of like a big community was when I went there. Yeah. I think you're also as a community builder, you're one of the mm-hmm. only people in my life that I can talk honestly about my terrifying fear of accidentally starting a cult with. Yes. Like <laughs> I think it's like a natural ethical response when you're creating shared norms Mm -hmm. and cultures and things to like, want to not be terrified of like, I listen to the cultish podcast a lot because I listen to, I think one of the things that that book and that podcast has done is like normalize that everything kind of toes the line. Um, And it's just really the intent and the ethics of the leadership behind it. But I don't know. I do. I, you were one of the first people that ever like named that. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'm terrified of that too. It's a big, it's a big thing. And you know, the, the best relief I found came from sharing that openly. I shared that at like an interplay event. I was like, you guys, I'm really terrified that I'm like starting a cult. And one of my members, Issa, um, who's in interplay and outer work and is like super active in both and has become a really good friend. She was like, she was like, you're not starting a cult because you like help us to empower ourselves rather than take our power away from us. Um, And that really helped me because it made me feel like, okay, if I can keep doing that, then I think I'm in the clear. I think we're good, you know? Mm -hmm. And that is a perfect actually lead into one of, I feel like my big thesis statement question for you, which is what role does community building play in self and collective liberation? Oof. Goodness. I know. <laughs> I know. We can break it down if you want to, but that's where I, that's yeah. kind of where I wanted this to, that's the question I wanted that if I wanted to answer it, I would go to you. Yeah. 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 I've been thinking about this a lot actually, because, because of my program, which I'll talk about in this answer. And also, um, because I like to think of myself as a, I've been saying kind of like back and forth, like a decolonial community builder or like a liberatory community builder, they go hand in hand, but um, we'll go with like libertary, liberatory community builder for the purposes of this conversation, um, because they think it will help me to answer your question. So when I think about, well, let's talk about like what community building is in general, which I think I like have been doing for, like I said, I've been doing it for a long time, especially in interplay and outer work, I've been doing it. And then I went to my graduate program, which you already know, but I'll say for everybody else listening, um, is community liberation, indigenous and eco psychologies. So essentially I'm becoming a community psychologist, but with a very intense focus on decoloniality. Um, and so I've been learning a lot about like, what are the mechanics of community building when we're talking about actually supporting people's well-being? Um, and so that's kind of the answer. When you're talking about community building through the lens of supporting people, um, what it really means is you're supporting their empowerment, you're supporting their well-being, and you're supporting their liberation Um, And you can't do those things unless you're also looking at what are the root causes of what's causing them to not feel well, what's causing them to feel disempowered, what's causing them to feel oppressed rather than liberated. So they go hand in hand when we're talking about community building for self or for collective, because you can't really do one without the other. You can't just tell people like, oh, we're going to come together and like talk about healing without talking about like why it is that they need to be healed in the first place because of societal conditioning, because of the structures of capitalism and colonialism and other things that harm them, patriarchy, et cetera, that harm them. So they really do go hand in hand. 
Um, and there's something else I was going to say about that. Yes, self and collective liberation. The other thing I want to say is like, when we're talking about community building for collective liberation specifically, I think you have to also, hmm, what do I want to say here? You, I think that I said it, <laughs> you know, I think yeah. I said it. It's like they go hand in hand and there, you can't, you can't have one without the other. And I think about too, like the work and interplay and outer work. And that's why I always say they're separate, they're separate spaces. We do different things in the spaces, but in my dream world, everyone who's an interplay is an outer work and vice versa, because I think that people need space to focus solely on themselves and then they need space to think about how what they're doing is affecting others or what they're not doing is affecting others um, and to figure out how to, to do those processes in tandem. Um, and I think it feels like a big puzzle, but it actually isn't because you kind of naturally have to involve yourself when you think about a collective and you have to think about the collective when you're thinking about yourself because you're part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think the same way. I think like when I talk to people about the work that they want to do, the creative work they want to do, it's very much intertwined with personal development and understanding because in order to understand the role that you can play in somebody else's life, which is really all that work is, you have to first understand, like for me, it's always that, what do you secretly want to do all day? you know, what would bring you joy? What can we remember that you've always been good at? And there actually is something to be found in it. Like how you were saying, you've always been good at community building. Um, yeah. I also have been thinking about, so I've been reading this book called Thinking in Systems, because as you know, I'm like, a, um, I don't know what, what that, I don't even remember what that word is, but it's like the self-funded, self, um, self-funded academic. That's what I always call it. I'm like, Eventually, I'm going to go back and get another degree, probably. But for now, I'm just going to read a bunch of stuff, yeah. <laughs> read a bunch of PDFs. Um, but I've been reading Thinking in Systems, and I've been thinking about this idea that like, in order to know what's wrong, what's causing a problem, you have to figure out where in the system it's coming from. And so you have to be able to see the system and all of the various parts of a system in order to diagnose a problem and how true that is, like everything. Um, I don't know how that's related, but that's what that made me think of. Um, so what kind of world, what kind of world, I wanted to say, what kind of world do you want to help maybe co-create? But I also am kind of wondering what kind of world might be possible if we are all, or if, let's just say, if all of the people in a community even were committed to both self and collective liberation. Mm, yes. Okay. You're reminding me of the other thing I was going to say before too. So this is great. Um, what I was going to say is, you know, in talking about like decolonial community building, um, what comes up is why does community even matter in the first place, right? And I think that's kind of getting at what your question is of like, what could the world look like if we did this, right? Um, and the reason is because as human beings, like our innate nature is in community. We are tribal creatures. 
we are relational creatures. And so um, this relates a lot to decoloniality because of course, colonialism strips that away from us and it tells us we have to be individuals and you think about the structure of capitalism and how we're supposed to, it's like every man for himself vibes, which we all know is harmful on a million different levels. But if we look at any of our ancestries and some of us, for some of us, it's more immediate than for others, right? But if we look at any of our ancestries, pre-colonialism, pre-industrialism, we all come from these relational communities where people cared for one another and their quote unquote jobs were just to do the things absolutely necessary for life, to sustain life. And so that's my vision of the world. Um, and this is the thing that's like reinforced to me 5 million times a day through my schooling, but it's like the, the vision that I hold for the world is that we go back to that to some degree, to the degree that we can having experienced the last several hundred years of colonialism and of capitalism. We can't go back in time, but we can move forward with a more of a balance of relationality so that we're spending less time in the economy, like just kind of producing endless things and spending more time taking up space with care and like doing the things that we need to absolutely support one another. I was telling a coaching client yesterday of this thing I read. Um, it's called Epistemologies of the Heart by, I forget his first name, but his last name's Itzin. And it was just a short article, but it was essentially him talking about how in the, there's a movement called the Zapatista movement. And essentially what it is, is this movement to reclaim indigeneity and, and, um, in Latin America. And um, what he talks about is like the, the ways of knowing of the heart are these modes of care. And so like to practice decoloniality is just doing things like growing food or practicing herbalism or helping give birth to babies. Like the things that like literally like everyone needs and that we can all kind of learn to do to support one another's lives. So Yes, in my dream world, it's like we move towards a future that's like way less technology driven and way more driven by one-on-one -on -one support and group support for people, for, for life. Um, that's, the, that's the vision of, of community for me and the kind of utmost ideal and, and why I think that this community building matters so much. Because we can create that in small ways now. We don't have to like abolish everything first. We can start just doing that in our daily lives individually. Yeah. I'm curious about what you said about taking up space with care. Are there practices for that? Like, is that something that we can practice in our own life? Is that something that, you know, can be measured in a way, I guess, is what I'm wondering? How much space am yeah. I taking up and how do I know if I'm doing mm -hmm. it with care? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's community care. That's like, cultivating a practice of community care is the place to start. That's the whole purpose of outer work at this point in time um, is like, I want to help people create a practice for caring for others. Um, and it doesn't have to be through outer work. There's a million ways to get involved. I mean, I was in a class last week and my professor was saying that someone tried to, to chart out, like I think some professor somewhere in the UK tried to create a list of, of 
movements, like of organizations who are participating in social movements and gave up after a hundred thousand, <laughs> like after listing out a hundred thousand. So there's at least a hundred thousand <laughs> organizations in the world that are participating in social movements of some kind, like find one, you know, I think if everyone did that, it would be absolutely like just remarkable what we could accomplish. But I think people feel really overwhelmed and confused by where to start. Um, and I get that, like, I, I, I get that because that's something I struggled with for a really long time is like, where do I fit into social change? But we all have a role to play. There's all, we all have like some issue that we're passionate about. If we really think about it, we all like get fired up about something and we all have skills that we can offer to movement. So I think that's the way to think about it is like, what resources do you have? What do you care about? And how can you like merge those two things together? Um, as far as being able to really measure it, I don't really think that there's a way, to be honest. I think it's it's gonna fluctuate. I don't know that, you know, I used to say that I wanted people to be sus like sustained in their commitment to anti-racism. That was the original goal of outer work. But I've had conversations with people recently that have made me understand that like sustainability when it comes to community care work is actually quite, it's just, it's quite like um, amorphous. It's not really like a real thing. Like, what does that really mean to be sustained? Because at the end of the day, it's going to fluctuate based on the needs of the people that you're supporting, based on your energy levels. I think it's important that people care for themselves and take breaks when they need to and come back to the work when they can. So I think that, you know, there's, there's always going to be something to do. There's always going to be another, another action to take another thing to learn. And it's just a matter of like supporting yourself enough. And this goes back to the, to the self and collective liberation thing. It's a matter of supporting yourself enough to be able to keep returning. I think that's all we can hope for really. Yeah. Um, I think that framework of what resources do you have and what do you care about? That feels like very helpful, you know, something that somebody listening could go and do on a piece of paper, you know, two, just two sides of a coin and look at. Um, there was something else I wanted to ask you about that you had just, met. oh, the, the, the study, the 100,000 plus social care organizations, that feels so optimistic to me. Like that yeah. is such an optimistic figure. What, like, and I feel like we, optimism i'm i'm perpetually optimistic mm -hmm. um sagittarius so you know i'm an optimist <laughs> as Nicki minaj says like <laughs> i'm right there <laughs> um but i feel like there's a lot of i feel like you know you only have to go on the internet for so long before you find a certain degree of like pessimism especially about the way that we care for one another as a community um because we don't see it as much i don't think so yeah, I guess so just what are your thoughts on on that and what role are do you personally consider yourself optimistic or is there another word that better describes your assessment? Mm, that's a good question. I do consider myself an optimist. I really do. Um, but I think I'm an optimist realist and I don't know if that's a real thing, but um, I think often people think if you're optimistic, you're idealistic and therefore like disconnected from what's really happening in the world. But I am just someone who does believe in 
the capacity of people to be greater than they even think it is. I mean, that's like my role as like a coach and as a guide of any kind, like I have to hold that view and I do, which is why I do what I do. Um, but I agree, like that gives me a lot of hope too. And I think it's a, it's a careful line to balance, which is why I say I'm an optimist realist, because I think that like we're fucked in a lot of ways, <laughs> like let's be real, <laughs> especially when it comes to the climate. Um, I just read a great book called The Civilization is Finished, which daunting title, very dark read, like true content warning if you're sensitive about like climate anxiety, but was really very, actually very eye-opening, very liberating for me to read in a lot of ways because I'm not super well-versed in, in the climate crisis. Um, but this book was a conversation between two philosophers who are very involved in the climate crisis and basically I'm saying this for a reason, but, but basically the, the kind of gist of the book was like, there's very slim chance that like, we're going to be able to change people on such an ideological level quickly enough to like completely save the planet. It's just not really going to happen at this point. And I say that because I think the rhetoric around the climate crisis is that that's going to happen. Like if you look at any sort of climate organizations today, that's the goal is like, we're going to get everyone on board with changing, you know, making sure that we go completely carbon neutral and we're going to like, you know, reverse the warming of the planet. And those things aren't going to happen. <laughs> like pretty, like you look at the science. And so, but this book was saying like, but what's probably going to happen is like, we're going to experience a lot of disasters. Like there's going to continue to be extreme weather events and things like that. But what we can do is like take those moments of crisis and learn from them and start building community and supporting one another through those kinds of things. And through those disasters, we probably will come out the other side more resilient if we're willing to like pay attention. So that's why I say like, for me, that's the optimism realism line. It's like, let's be real about like where we're at, but let's also like have faith that bad things are going to happen and we're going to learn and grow from them, you know? Um, I think I, I think about that in terms of my own life and I think about yeah. it in terms of the world too. That's what I was going to say. I think that applies on a macro and a micro level, that kind of philosophy about that. Yeah. Um, I feel like you're also a kind of a walking resource hub right now. You know, man, you've got so much in that brain of yours. I know. Um, <laughs> like a little library in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's amazing though. Do you, I guess, um, you know, I'm also just curious about like your personal experience going through all of this deep, intense learning. I feel like you're in a very deep, like learning phase of your life. Um, how have, I guess one, how have you been balancing that with, you're kind of doing a lot, you know, you're kind of doing a lot at the same time. How are you balancing your personal, you know, learning and kind of, I guess, um, academic journey with your entrepreneurial journey or your business ownership journey with your, I guess, personal, spiritual yeah. and, and community care journey. Yeah. You know, I think see all the things as being the same thing, which is maybe what saves me in a lot of ways. And I don't really feel overwhelmed or busy ever. Um, I refuse stress. I like hate, 
I just, I refuse to be stressed. <laughs> I say it all the time. It's like the motto of our household um, because it's just useless to me. But that being said, I have to, I do have to battle with myself sometimes to remember that like everything doesn't have to get done today. Um, then that, that's okay. Um, I try to just show up for what's most important and most pressing. And that's really all I can do is what I've learned. Um, do I wish that like interplan outdoor work were growing exponentially right now? Of course. But I also recognize that I made like a vow to myself when I started this program. Like I was like, I'm going to this program and I'm going to be building a quote unquote career for myself through this program. Um, and so I'm giving myself that space to like build it. And I'm only like five months into my program. So I'm, it's fairly new five months into five years. <laughs> so it's fairly new. Um, and I'm just trying to give myself space. Like I honestly, that's all I feel like I can do for me. It's all about mindset always. Like I'm just in a mindset where I'm like, I'm going to be patient with myself and I'm going to give myself grace and I'm going to get done what I can. And I'm going to do everything in the simplest way possible, which is something you taught me. So. Lovely. I love on complication. Exactly. Um, yeah. Do you ever, do you ever use like an archetype? Like, are you ever like today I am sometimes mm. I'm Elle Woods. <laughs> sometimes like I was just at the gym actually right before this, I was Elle Woods at the gym. I was like writing my little notes about what I was going to talk to you about on the treadmill. Like, like again, like I love a smart girl movie. Um, <laughs> do you find yourself, I guess, what is, what's your aesthetic right now? Yeah. And how do you feel? Oh, um, I love that you asked that. <laughs> because I'm that. actually that's that feels like a missing puzzle piece for me right now and I think it is be I was just telling my friend this last night like I think it is because I'm taking in so much information and I am in this like sh giant shift in my consciousness so like I don't really know like who I am or what I'm it's very like day-to-day -day for me which is kind of always how I've been like I feel like I dress like a cartoon character like I <laughs> I dress in like little you know like I play a different role with how I dress a lot um, but lately I've just been like, just feeling like I, I'm like, I don't know, really know who I am. And it's not like a bad feeling, but it is weird for me. Like, I don't feel super connected to that. I think the other part of it is like being in the surge right now of COVID and like having to scale back on social interactions again. And, and also living in Santa Cruz away from most of my like IRL community, I don't have like those people to like bounce myself off of, you know, when mm -hmm. I'm like, when I was living in LA and I was like seeing my two best friends every week and, you know, going to coffee shops every day and like going to events all the time. Like I had a whole persona based on the person that I was yeah, in all of those things. You have mirrors. Exactly. You have people that can mirror you back to you. Exactly. Oh, I'm going through that big time. Which is the role of community is to be your mirror. Oh. Something else I've been thinking about a lot. <laughs> That makes a yeah. lot of sense. I, yeah, we I, I think of, um, no, I, I was just going to say, I think of my brain is just one big Tumblr plate yeah. page essentially. <laughs> um, but there's like one screenshot that I have in some folder or maybe in my favorites folder on my phone. And it's like a screenshot of Janae Iko and Big Sean, like Janae Iko commenting or Big Sean commented on something of hers. And then like he said, like, you're beautiful or something. And she said, baby, I'm just your reflection. 
Mm-hmm. And I screenshotted it and just kept it. Cause I was like, that's like the nicest thing that you could say <laughs> back to like a compliment. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just your reflection. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, potentially one of the more painful things you could say back to somebody who was being unkind to you. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that yeah, that's a sick burn. <laughs> yeah, it's a sick burn. <laughs> you know, if you can manage it right without sounding like you're just a walking um, Instagram therapy meme. Yeah, but <laughs> it's true though. Yeah. You know, if you think about like think about like the pretty decent community, like like people who are showing up looking for someone to mirror back to them that they're a business owner, that they're an entrepreneur. Same thing with interplay. It's like you show up and you're going to get mirrors that are going to like remind you that you're on a self-development journey. In outer work, it's that you're on a community care journey. You That's what communities are for. You show up for the spaces where you're going to get the identity that you're looking for mirrored back to you. Oh, wow. Right? That's wild. Yeah. Mind that's that's yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. That's really, really. Yeah. I don't want to say. Yeah, that's. Oh, that's like shifting my brain right now. I feel some type of connection happening. Yeah, that makes sense because you go into community, you know, even if I if I were to go and get sign up to get a master's right now, which I want to do, I don't know in what yet, but in some time, I want to do a deeper type of study, um, just honestly, because I like studying. And if I were to do that, I would do it with the intention of being a, also around people who also care deeply about this thing. And to me, I would always think like, oh, I want to be in conversation. I want to have really great teachers. But it's, it is that they reflect back to me my curiosity and passion. Yeah. That is really cool. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and so um, I know that we had talked a little bit about, um, you want to like your work with companies and brands or maybe helping people facilitate their own. I know that you work with community builders. Um, and so I'm also wondering as a community builder, if there's anything that you wish you saw more of in the communities that people build or um, practices that would make them more liberatory you know, because I think a lot of people, a lot of people I talk to, because I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, I find that to be one of the biggest motivations of entrepreneurship is I want to build a community of people who want to talk about personal development. You know, it's that same thing. They want to mirror. Um, so yeah, is there anything that you wish, you know, that you, any sage wisdom you would give community builders? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Potato is <laughs> making an appearance. Hi, potato. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I actually wrote a paper on this for my last quarter that was about how to build decolonial communities, um, build decolonial community spaces. So the way that I think about this, I'll say this, there's a lot of like, there's like a Tetris of frameworks in my brain that are like shuffling around. I think it's helpful to lay out what those are. So first of all, when we're talking about community building or when I talk about it, and when I do work with people on it, it's typically working with individuals who are thought leaders, who are knowledge workers of some kind, who want to build a community around the topics they want to talk about. Or it could be working with brands who are trying to build community amongst their customers. It could be organizations trying to build community amongst the people that they're trying to serve. Um, So that's just to give you an idea of like who I'm talking about. And then 
the other kind of framework that I think about is like, what are the stages of community building? So I think there's a, there's an intention setting phase of like, what are you as the community builder looking to put into the world? What do you, what do you, what is your purpose in building this community? Right. It's the why of the community and maybe the who of who, who you're really envisioning being there. And then there's like a listening phase of trying to figure out what it is that the community really needs. Like, how are you going to fill that purpose? Then there's a designing phase of what do you, it's, you know, it's what you talk about, the offer design, essentially. In my mind, it's more of like a, um, like a programming design, because I think at least in, in the way that I like to build community, it's usually through events or content or things like that. So it's, it's programming. Um, and then there's a phase of like the member engagement, like keeping people interested. Actually, before that one, sorry, before that one, there's the talking about your your programming. How are you going to get people to come in and build it? You know, the marketing, so to speak. And then it's the keeping people engaged, the engagement piece. And then lastly, kind of depending on what your goals or motivations might be, it could be like evaluating the work you've done and iterating upon that. So essentially this paper that I wrote and the way that I think about this when working with people is about how we can build liberatory, decolonial, sustainable, well-being oriented um, community design into each of those steps. So, I mean, there's like a million things I could say, and it's going to vary based on the group that I'm talking to or the person that I'm talking to. Right. But to speak broadly, one is in that first intention setting and that first, like, purpose building. I think the thing that has to be done to make it liberatory, to make it decolonial is to make it just, is to have a goal that's centered around care. It's like what we talked about before. How are you actually planning on caring for people? Like if your purpose doesn't involve offering people care in some way, then it's just not liberatory work of decolonial. Then in this listening phase, that's like, that's the most like clear cut answer because like in community psychology work and, and I think this echoes probably a lot to like what you talk about too, in like offer design work, it's like, you have to listen to what people are saying. You have to know like what you, what your, what your quote unquote consumer or your audience or whoever you want to call it, your community, what they're in need of, what they're wanting what their vision is for themselves, for the world. You have to be listening to those kinds of things. Um, otherwise, you're building something for yourself and not for other people. And you're not building with other people, which is the most important thing. You cannot like build community for someone, you build it with them, right? That's what the people at People and Company say. But that's actually like a number one tenet of community psychology as well. Um, participatory action. Mm -hmm. Then you go into like the designing phase. So you, you've set a purpose that's centered around care and you listen to what people are really needing and wanting and so forth. And then you're in this design phase where you're like, okay, well, how are we going to build these programs? If you want to do that decolonially or in a liberatory way, you do that again with the people that are in your community. You talk to them about what do they want to see? What's going to really support them? Um, and honestly, like in my own work, that has been the thing that has made so much difference, not only in like the quality of community that I've built, but also for me, like it's helped me to feel so much less pressure, so much less overwhelm around like, is this thing I'm making the right thing for everyone? Is everyone going to be happy about it? Are people going to show up? 
if you just talk to people about what they want and they tell you, well, I want to have a space to show up and like read a book, then if you have build that in, you know, people are going to come because you gave it to them and it makes them feel involved and they are involved. It's their community as much as it is yours. Right. So that's super important. Um, and then in, in terms of like talking about what you're doing and getting people involved, I think for me, that's the thing that I think people get tripped up on the most because it feels so vulnerable, right? The like marketing of the thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. But again, I think it's about if you're if you're trying to do it in a way that centers care and centers people's freedom, what that really means is like, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> no, okay. What that really means is like, just talking about the thing and allowing for people to resonate with it or not. Like, I think for me, that's the stage where I have to like shut down strategic thinking a little bit and just be like, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This is who's involved. If this sounds like something you want to do, come join us. Mm -hmm. And just be able to trust that people who are going to come, come. Because I think when you start to be on that edge of like trying to convince people, that becomes a little bit less decolonial becomes a little bit less liberatory it starts to have those like edges of oppression where you're trying to like conquer people essentially bust their objections yeah um, yeah I I also what what came up for me too because I I do a lot with the marketing phase Mm -hmm. um but I wonder if what's happening when people get really tripped up is that they're starting at the wrong stage, right? So if you start with marketing, and that's, I think, a lot to do with intention too, because if you go into a lot of very popular um, sales and marketing programs, right? The ones, you know, you and I both have been in the entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. industry for a long time. Mm -hmm. So if you go into the entrepreneurship industry, into a lot of maybe less intentional um, programs, one of the things you're going to find quickly is like, oh, make a commute, make a group so that you have a bunch of warm leads. And that's a very different thing than making a group so that you can connect with people or making a group so that you can care for people. I feel like often the care is an afterthought after the strategy. So if you're leading with marketing strategy, instead of leading with care, if you're leading with capitalism or money, you know, before you're leading with care, it's also it makes me think of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation because it's so much less motivating. Like I would not like my business if it was only about making sales because I probably, I don't, I also could, how would I know that the people joining my programs were people that I actually liked? You know what I mean? I think one of the great things about, yeah, is that you get, you know, about putting a little bit more care into it, even if it is slower, which is a big thing, which is a thing that I've experienced and I know you've experienced, even if it is slower as we build out the systems, because when you get to that phase where you said marketing, you have to kind of take the strategy out for me, that's when I just need a system. Like that is the point where it's just, how do I automate introducing myself and my work to other people? So email, you know, you know, quick little landing pages, like quick little sales systems. That's for me where that comes in. And that's why I really like systems because it's like, oh, I can say hello to everybody, you know, in the same way, in a nice way and a not, you know, in a thoughtful way or whatever it might be. Well, I think too, the difference is like using, what am I trying to say? The difference is like building community as a product, because I think that's what we're talking about is like Mm -hmm. the thing that I sell is a community space. 
versus generating a community to sell them something else, Mm -hmm. right? I think there's a difference between those two things. I'm not really interested in the latter, right? Like I'm Mm -hmm. not interested in like, that's why I'm like, I, yeah, like I'll work with people who are trying to like, you know, build community for their audience, but I'm going to do it in a way that's like, this isn't about you bringing people in to try to sell them something. This is about you taking care of your people for the sake of- And they're going to trust you. Right, because that's your responsibility. And if they then trust you and they like you more because of it, great. And they want to buy something from you later on, awesome. But that's not what we're building community for, you know? There's Mm -hmm. a difference there. That is a big difference. Yeah. That's a really big difference. I think a lot of them- you know, again, like contemporary community building strategy or advice revolves around segmenting off a section of people, right? So if I go and start a a Facebook group and I call it, you know, advice, you know, the marketing advice for, um, I don't know, whatever artists and creatives and I get people in and, and that's the, you know, the reason that I'm doing that is to, enroll them into a different program. Cause I like on, on one level, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense strategically. Um, and it, maybe it's just that, I don't know, maybe it's just that it's not the forefront of that equation or that there's practices built in to care for those people first, you know, before all of the, the sales starts. Like I, I do wonder about where that balance happens. Um, because at the same time, it is, it is a, you know, it is a strategy, I guess. That's where I, I struggle with it. Cause I can't ever unsee the strategy. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Neither. Well, so let's, I'm actually really curious about like unpacking that if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. We can use <laughs> so, pretty decent if you need a tangible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, so like what, explain it to me then, like, what's the conundrum? Okay. So I guess what I'm thinking, so I use... I, I have the map that Delia made me now mm-hmm. and I have the, um, I made making it literal. I'm just going to pull it up for me and you, I can maybe attach it in the show notes for people listening, but I show people this map when I'm talking and, t- and selling effectively, you know, membership. Um, I start, you know, we have a community space that is open the same way that a cafe is open. If you want to buy a coffee, Sure. But like, you can also just sit here and read. So we have co-working, we have the bulletins channel, we have recommendations, we have this. And that's what I, that's what the, the Slack is to me is this big community space. So that's the place where I'm like, what's your top three, you know, or sharing interesting podcasts and like inviting people in, but a natural part of that strategy is also letting people know that there is a private space as well. Um, and there is the membership in the study, and that's where you're going to get the live classes and the massive library and all of those things. And so when I tell people about it, I mean, I try to be intentional in saying like, there's no rush. You know, I stopped closing the doors because I felt like I was, um, you know, uh, manufacturing a sense of urgency that didn't need to be there and kind of doing those things, but still one, I mean, the cafe existed before the membership. So the cafe was always going to exist, but the cafe now also serves as the beginning of, you know, as the lead magnet. Right. Right. And, and it triggers a, a, you know, an email campaign that does 
mm-hmm. sell the membership. Right. So that's where, that's where, that's my tangible example. Right. So you have, it's essentially two community spaces. There's a community space that acts as a lead magnet and there's a community space that is the offer. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so then what's the question? Like, how do you make the, the lead magnet one feel more decolonial or care centered when it is yeah. essentially like a place to warm people up? Yeah. Offer value. Offer value. And that's what you do. Yeah. You're still offering care to people because you're giving them a space where they can be mirrored. They can see themselves reflected back by the other people that are in the space. You're offering them a space where they can talk things out with each other. They can get support. They can get advice. They can share ideas. They can do certain things. Um, But I think that's the, that's the key because if you're just bringing people into a space and you're saying like, um, because I'm trying to think of like, what would be an example of like a lead magnet community space that wouldn't be care centered, you know? And I think it wouldn't be care centered if it was like, you know, you're just funneling people into a place and you're just constantly selling at them. You know, like you're constantly being like, this is what I'm offering today. This is what I'm offering today. Here's a testimonial. Here's this. Don't you want to do this? Don't you want, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you're giving people like something that's just valuable. It, for me, Yes, it's a league magnet, but I wouldn't even think of it that way. Yeah. Like, I would just think of it as like a, it's just an alternative community space that's free. Like, it's just the, it's just the free version of the space. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like you have a sliding scale offer, right? And then like the one that's free just doesn't include access to that other space. But once you start paying, you get access to the other space too. Mm-hmm. You get more care. And more focus on you, more mirrors, more whatever, however you want to look at it. Yeah. I mean, it makes me want to add more care into it. You know, I think also some of the most tangible or popular uh, entrepreneurial advice is not to give too much away for free. And I think what I'm taking away from this conversation is like, that's almost impossible. Like you can't care too much for people. I think that, and I, I have always not believed in that. I've always thought maybe like, I've always thought that that would come back. Like it would be, um, but yeah, it's making me want to add more care. Give hella shit away for free. That's what I think. Yeah. I think so too. But I'm also like a prudent anti-capitalist. So (laughs) yeah, but yeah, give more shit away for free. Like life's hard enough. Like the, the, I think the least we can do is give people community. You know, and we have to survive, which is why we have paid offers too. Yeah. But it doesn't hurt us. Like you're saying, it, it's going to like build trust. It's going to build compassion. It's going to build um, relatability with these people who could eventually become paying members one day. Um, but ultimately you're just putting more good into the world, which I think is never a bad thing. Amazing. Um, all right. Let me look back at my question list for you. Uh, one thing I did want to ask you about is what you had, what you wish you'd known before kicking off specifically, I guess, your community spaces. Um, Cause I feel like I'm also to contextualize, like I think people listening will most likely be people who have creative businesses or people who want to start creative businesses. That tends to be my pool of people. Um, so what do you wish you had known? You have a very creative business, you know, you're a very 
especially, yeah, very creative businesses because they solve very specific problems. And that to me is creativity, period. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you wish you'd known? Um, you know, it came up immediately. It was like, I wish I knew that I was building community spaces when I started them <laughs> because neither one of them started that way, which, you know, it's not like I have any regrets about the path whatsoever. Um, but Interplay started as like, I mean, you were like an OG member and it started as me like posting blog content behind a paywall every month. And then I realized, oh, maybe these people like want to talk to each other (laughs) who are reading this information. And then it evolved slowly into a community space. And that is like the main focus of what we do now. And same thing with outer work. Like it was a space where I was sharing, as you remember, like a thing every single day related to anti-racism. And I was writing every day. Um, And it was great. That was like so good for me. And we built a huge audience really fast because of the time in which it launched and what's whatever, but I didn't realize like I was building a community space. Um, and so it's taken me, it's been a very like up and down bumpy road, I think to like get there for me, especially with outer work of like, oh, that's what I'm doing. Like I'm actually building a space for people to come together and like work on community care. Um, but I didn't realize that. And so it, that road was hard, <laughs> you know? So I would say, I guess it's like thinking about like the people who might be listening to this. It's like, if you want to build a community, build a community, think about like what the steps are to building a community, like the steps I just named and think about how to be intentional at each of those phases. Um, and I think if you go into it with that intention, it will just be a much smoother ride rather than thinking like, oh, well, I'm going to like, like thinking of it as like, oh, I'm building like a course or, oh, I'm building like a, you know, um, it could be anything. It could be like, I'm building like a series of events programming, or I'm, I'm building like, I guess I said course. And in my mind, it was like a, a live course, like a thing on zoom, but it could also have been like a written course or whatever it is. If you go into it thinking like, I'm building a community space, that's going to offer this course. It's going to offer this content. It's going to offer these events then I think it switches your frame of mind a bit to be able to think about how to generate a good group of people who are going to respond to whatever you throw at them. Um, Not just building a thing that's like, you're going to have to keep rebuilding it over and over again. Right. Like you would, if you built a series of courses. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think I, what I, what I heard was if you want to build a community, build a space, like build a community space, like think about the container. Um, and your, your phases of community building reminded me a lot of design thinking and that Mm -hmm. idea that like, you know, just core entrepreneurship principle that you don't make things until people tell you that they need them because it's a waste of resources, your time, your energy, money, whatever it is. It's a, it's not a waste maybe, but it's not a, um, healthy investment, maybe let's say. Yeah. And so it, it doesn't, you know, create as rich of a soil as doing something in response to what somebody has told you that they need. Right. Um, yeah. That's something else I wish I knew before, I think, cause I've, I've been there, like I've planned so many events and courses and things that either never got off the ground or I got them off the ground and they didn't perform how I wanted them to because I just did them from a place of my own overthinking rather than like talking to my community and hearing from them directly what they need. Yeah. Makes me want to go in Slack right now and be like, what events do you want? Yeah. <laughs> what do you do want to talk it. about? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. You have that's, a container and that's yeah. all you need. Mm-hmm. And that's that co-creative element um, that I learned from you and I learned from Nina Everflow. Because I think mm-hmm. you and I had very similar journeys. I started pretty decent. I was like, oh, I'll upload one recorded <laughs> course mm-hmm. a week, you know, one recorded lesson a week. And then that last one of Dream Work Life that you were in, we mm-hmm. I was like, oh, let's do it live so that we can talk about what we've learned in the course. And it was like the best one. And yeah. it was so much easier for me too. I'm just a huge fan of live, you know, live teaching at because it's also just intuitive. It's like how classes work. Um, most of the time asynchronous, I do think there's, there's really good places where asynchronous classes works. Um, but most of the time, I think it's better to be able to answer questions in real time. Thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I mean, especially working with creative people who are, I think tend to be bouncing around a lot or tend to like have a million thoughts at one time or projects going like I know for myself. I cannot show up for a recording of something. It's so hard for me. I'm like, oh, I'll watch it later. I never watch it. I just can't. So having something live, again, that's like, that's catering to your community. If you know that, here's the thing. If you know that about yourself, if you're a person like that, the chances are people in your life are also like that. I don't know what it is. Like, I wish the I could mirror. put my finger. No, I did. Yeah, the mirror for sure. But like, I know why it is that the people around you are like that. But I mean, like, why is it? Like, what is the characteristic of person that struggles showing up to something recorded? I wonder. Maybe it's everyone. <laughs> I think, well, some, I think um, my instinct is to say like neurodivergence in some way. Also tech burnout. Also, I think it's, a, I think it probably is at the intersection of a lot of things. Um, you know, doing, there are accessibility limits to doing things live. Cause of course some people aren't in the same time zone. That was what I wanted to ask you actually. Well, cause I know we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, you mentioned earlier that your vision for the world, it becomes less technological and more decolonial. Uh, are decolonization and technology mutually exclusive one and two what do we do with the fact that we, you and I both use, you know, Slack, Mighty Networks, Kajabi, Zoom, we use technological tools, including right now, as we sit on Zoom, yeah. to facilitate community. Like, how do those things work together and how do we not feel icky about it? For sure. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think pre-coloniality and technology would be mutually exclusive, like quite literally. There was no technology of the kind that we're talking about, the computer-oriented technology, right? But decoloniality, I guess it would be helpful to say what that really means, is essentially like it's an ideological understanding of the world that is based on relationality. So it doesn't necessarily mean like we're going to not have technology, for me personally, what it means is like, we should focus on the technologies that serve a purpose and that serve a really distinct function that supports care, supports justice, et cetera. So something like Zoom, this supports the ability for us to have this conversation, which I think is meaningful, supports the, us in having, um, being able to teach the classes that we think are meaningful, that kind of thing. That has a function. The kind of technology that I would like to see go away is just like dumb apps that like no one really actually needs in their lives that are taking up space where people could instead be spending that time in community with one another. 
Um, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So I think there's things that support life. There's technologies that support life and there's technologies that take away from life. So for me, that's the difference there. And what was the second part of your question? Um, I don't remember, but I do, because I'm the type of person who has to do this, <laughs> I do keep a transcript open so I can see what I just said or what you Our, just said if my said brain this. goes yeah. down. Or... <laughs> Our technology and decoloniality mutually exclusive. Yeah. And then, oh, and then I think you were saying like, how do you- How do we of... not, I, I think my question was really like, if the goal, well, it was your visions, but, you know, personally, I was just wondering how that um sits with i mean i'm i'm thinking of like metaverse right because i think a lot of people right now are feeling really dystopian and weird about the idea that we may soon be able to put on goggles and like enter a room with people and honestly i sometimes feel bad cuz the the internet child part of my brain is like that's sick i don't want to <laughs> do it on mark zuckerberg's tool but mm -hmm. I, if somebody else built a tool, if somebody that I trusted built a tool that allowed me to do that, I actually think that would be really cool because I, I immediately go to like, what if I could see the people? I've been teaching Zoom classes for two years. Like, what if I could see people that I was, I've never even met most of the people that I've been in community with for years. I don't even know how tall everyone is. At the beginning of the, our next class of next, tomorrow night, we're doing, uh, we already talked about it in strategic intuition on Friday. We're doing a, I'm going to pull up a Milan or um, a Miro, like a jam board and everybody's going to have to put their name and their height <laughs> and how tall they are. <laughs> Cause I had no idea. So people like, they didn't know I was five two. Like, oh yeah. I know it's weird to me that you're five two. <laughs> really weird to me. You're it's five seven in my mind. That's amazing. <laughs> Cause I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Um, I yeah. Like I'm just wondering, yeah. how what we do with that tension. Right. Oh, I mean, something, there's another concept related to decoloniality that I think about a lot, which is this concept of the third way, which is essentially like, again, we can't go back to pre-colonial times because we live in a capitalist world and like it happened. Colonialism happened, it's happening. <laughs> so there's no way to go backwards. But what there is a way to do is go forward in this vision of a third way where like, we don't have to be purely like in capitalism and colonialism and we don't have to be pre-colonial, but there's a third way that takes into account both of those experiences, collective experiences and forges a new path forward that is in support of our well-being and et cetera, right? Um, and so I think I said that to say that I think that vision looks different for everyone. Um, and this is where I struggle too, because I think you want to be able to, like, I want to be able to uphold certain values. Um, but at the same time, I know that core to my values is liberation. And that means freedom of choice. So if people want that, who am I to say no, right? But at the same time, I do think that these technologies cause a lot of harm, even on like climate level, like mm -hmm. the amount of resources that have to go into creating them. Just that alone. Is that really worth it? I don't think so. Um, or I think about like the, on a psychological level, like what are these technologies doing to us? And we've had many conversations about social media and what that does to us on a psychic level. I mean, we as in me and you, and also like on the collective level, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm back in a phase, by the way, where I'm like, I'm going to delete Instagram. It's going to happen. 
So like I haven't used Instagram. I mean, I don't can't do it. TikTok stole all of my brain power. <laughs> well, I can't do that either. I, just, I know. It's crazy. So I think like what I'm trying to say is like it's personal choice, but I guess like for me, if I'm gonna uphold the values that are important to me, these there's no room for those kinds of things in my future now or like in my vision of the future. I just can't. <laughs> I gotta stick with the tools that actually, again, support support life. But then again, it's like, who's to say what does and doesn't support life? There are some yeah. obvious answers, but then there are some yeah. that are fuzzier. Yeah, I, I like I like the framing of a person, like a liberatory personal choice of what is worth it, mm-hmm. because I think that that's where a lot of the I, that's where a lot of like, like you had said earlier, the thing that makes you not a cult leader is that you give people back their own power, that you help people find their own power. So it feels like the sticking point is that personal choice, you know, and, but also giving people the tools to evaluate whether or not something is worth it for them, which feels like also being able to identify what are your own values, you know. And, and how do those interact with the choice and the decision that you're making right now? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Very sticky stuff. Yeah. That stuff is sticky still for me. I think it'll, it's one of those things where like, I will continue to learn and get deeper into my own ethics as I go. And then it will become clearer for me. But right now, like, I feel like I'm still in I'm like if we think about it on those that community framework level I'm like in the I'm in the listening phase of the collective on a macro scale right now you know yeah and like I can't know what the solutions are or I mean I can never know what the solutions are because I'm one person but I can't even maybe even gear my questions yet I maybe I'm in the first phase like the intention setting phase right of like what is the the purpose or driving towards and like getting more clear on that, getting more clear on what is that vision that I, I hold for the future. And it feels like you got there in, in very much like the design thinking model or like the growth spiral model, you got back to there because you are somebody who's been actively doing, like to hear you say that you're in stage one is almost jarring you know because you've been doing it and you've built two really amazing communities and you're studying this thing and so it's like it's almost that idea like I keep doing the infinity symbol with my hands but that like idea that once you once you do the thing you still have to come back to stage one and start again because that's how we get I think that's how we stay grounded and how that's where innovation really comes from the iteration Exactly. I was going to say like stage one and stage five or six or whatever it is, the iteration phase are really kind of the same thing. Um, It's like re-intentionalizing that purpose over and over again. So I guess that is kind of where I feel I am like on a macro, macro level of building towards a collective future, a collective, like a community future um, on a global level, I guess, like that feels, I'm like always changing my mind about, you know, what I actually envision there. And then that is going to filter down into a more micro level of like how that's going to show up for me in interplay and in outer work and how it's going to show up for me like in an interpersonal level in my daily life, right? Like it's all connected. 
Time it's connected. the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a big lesson. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I uh, I appreciate you chatting with me. I have been resisting in my personal life the um, inclination to want to wrap everything up with a very clean, tight bow and come to a conclusion because <laughs> yes. I also just feel like I have no... I'm not sure of anything, (laughs) you know, and like we, I don't always have to land somewhere. That's where I've been at lately. Um, so I appreciate you coming and just talking about really big ideas and sharing again, some of the, like, um, what do we, what does Roxanne always say that we're like crowdfunding your PhD or we're like something (laughs) crowdsourcing, like you're like, (laughs) we're like getting it from you. We're we're getting a PhD too, but only from listening to you. He says we're microdosing my PhD. That's what what it is. Microdosing your PhD. Um, So I appreciate (laughs) that. (laughs) Yeah. How might somebody who's listening and just fell deeply in love with you and your brain stay connected with you? Definitely still follow me on Instagram until I delete it. <laughs> and um interplay and outer work if somebody just really yeah, you can find wants- all of the links to all of the things through my through my id that's why i always say that one interplay at inner dot play at outer dot work um and all my all my links to both memberships are in my instagram bio too amazing into my coaching into my consulting into all the different things (laughs) which the I mean I should say as one of your energy coaching clients it is a very helpful thing Mm -hmm. so I highly endorse that service if somebody needs needs to talk through things (laughs) amazing well thank you again um I'll talk to you soon thank you and I'm gonna stop the recording now okay Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pretty Decent Podcast. As usual, for the time being, the show is written, scripted, edited, and produced, oh, and hosted, yes, by me, Lexi Merritt. Our theme music is by Aaron Kenny. And if you are interested in getting to know the Pretty Decent Internet Cafe, maybe hanging out in our free community space, or joining our private membership, The Study, you can learn more about both of those spaces at www.prettydecent.org. I'll talk to you soon.